This episode is brought to you by Canela Bistro and Wine Bar, serving Spanish plates and over 70 wines from Spain in the heart of San Francisco. Visit us socially at Canela SF and canelasf.com. You're listening to Food, Wine, and the Culinary Mind with Matt Schuster. We're getting inside the brilliant and delicious minds of remarkable culinary individuals. We're telling stories, cutting up, and breaking it down. All right, welcome again to my friend Andrea Sundell. How are you? Hi, good. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining me uh, yet again. This time we are talking Alex Reich. Yeah, she is an amazing chef in New York. I had a, a great time talking with her. They have four restaurants. Oh. Yeah, so they have as many restaurants as you have children. And uh, Andrea and her husband, Robert, have two restaurants, one in San Francisco called Play, which is fine dining Nordic flavors. Correct. Yeah. Yes. And lovely. I've eaten there several times. Thank it is you. delicious as hell. Thank you, thank you. And... Here in Petaluma, which we are now, another restaurant called Stockholm, which is a fast, casual, family-friendly version of what you all like to eat the most when yes. you're there and what your husband especially grew up with Correct. as his food. So, and we're going to come back to that. The interesting thing about Alex and talking with her through her interview process is that she really wants to stay true to the Spanish and the Basque cuisine that they cook. And that especially with the Basque cuisine, she talks about really staying within the, not the guidelines per se, but she really wants to be able to cook classic Basque food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And being very clear with the message that they're sending and what they're offering. So there's no fusion with her country of origin either. You know, I mean, that could certainly get, get argued with modern Spanish and Basque cuisine that there is fusion. Got it. But we were talking about mainly traditional Basque cuisine. recipes and cuisine and ingredients. And it's funny because we were getting into this conversation before about your restaurant here in uh -huh. Petaluma. Uh -huh. And it's not the first types of dishes that people would think when they think of Nordic and Scandinavian cooking. No. Not at all. And so explain that a little bit, because I love the story behind that. Yeah, I think we've broken every rule with respect to what people think of Nordic cuisine. And what we really wanted to highlight at Stockholm was food that we as a family unit loved to eat in Stockholm, Sweden, mm -hmm. and some of the dishes that Robert grew up with, as well as some very, very traditional dishes that you think of right. as being very Swedish. And we already had our Nordic presence in San Francisco with that fine dining. So mm -hmm. here... One of our favorite things to eat is kebab, which is like a Donner kebab. Um, there's tons of very casual stands around Stockholm and other parts of Sweden. And we, it's the first thing we talk about when we get on the plane and like the first place we go when it's time to eat. I love it. And so we, we were talking before that in Spain, you know, we have a Spanish restaurant. And when we go to Spain, mostly the Donner kebab is eaten late at night after drinks. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly not what people think of when they think about Spanish cuisine, but you know, it is cuisine in Spain right now. So, yeah. so you could make an argument for that as part of the culture. It, it certainly is. I mean, and it's not just like 
the that Donner kebab, the style in Sweden, like Swedes are, it's the number one selling item in Sweden. So it's not, of course, it's drunk food, but it's not just <laughs> drunk food. Right. I mean, they now in their pizzerias have kebab pizza, you mm-hmm. know, and in in addition to some of your more traditional uh, Italian style, but mm-hmm. you know, they also have a banana curry. I mean, where did that come from? Mm. And it's one of the most popular flavors. Mm. So I think what it's kind of highlighting about European culture is how diverse it is. Right. And the, there are certain very traditional items that are heritage items. And then there's a lot that have been integrated. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we love to eat. I don't like to eat. I would never eat Swedish food every day of my life ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I probably could eat Mexican food every day of my life. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the concept with Stockholm is to bring over everything that we love. So something else that we also talk about in the episode with Alex is, you know, really having a clear message and having a clear game plan with the restaurant, Mm -hmm. you know. So talk about that for, for a minute. It's interesting because with play, we didn't, we weren't really all that clear yet we adjusted very quickly to what we realized our audience was. Mm -hmm. Um, We were clear on the menu. It was Mm going to be, you know, new Nordic heritage food, rustic uh, Swedish food, but we're not clear on our clientele. We were very amateur as restaurateurs at the time. Well, and sometimes, Um, you you know, you don't know who's going to come. No, you don't. So we, you know, had this idea and then we really solidified it once we were, once we understood what, what it was here, it was very clear, but it was really, really challenging to explain. So mm-hmm. it didn't translate to our audience in a very clear way. But Especially now, with the second restaurant, people were probably thinking, oh, it's going to be Play Petaluma. Yes, right, right. And I don't know if Play Petaluma would have done as well. Mm. I think the fact that we have such a diverse menu actually, you know, makes it so unique. And this is way more casual, kind mm-hmm. of family friendly. Like I was very focused on what I wanted for this restaurant. It was always clear to you about yeah. that. Yeah. 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 What I knew it would be family friendly and I knew we were going for more casual. What surprised me, not surprised me, but what I realized is I kind of built this for women and moms <laughs> in mind. And that is the most enthusiastic group I have yeah. found. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, we, we get loved by you know, dads too, yeah. or non-dad or men in general. Men and you, and you have a giant display of Swedish candy up front. Giant delay. Which is, like, which is yeah. awesome. Mm-hmm. And it's delicious. It's very popular. I think more adults buy it than kids. Yeah. Uh, but it's great bribery with, yeah. <laughs> with everybody, with everybody. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, thanks for sharing your thoughts on that. So let's talk a little bit about Alex Reich. So she grew up in Chicago, born to Argentinian parents, and she met her husband, Chef Eder Montero, and they went on to open up four different restaurants. Amazing. I know. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? I can't, no, I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in 2007, they opened El Quinto Pino, a multi-regional tapas bar in Chelsea. Then a few blocks away, they opened Chiquito, a strictly Basque restaurant inspired by her husband, Edder's uh, Basque roots. Then La Vara in 2012 in Brooklyn, serving Spanish food influenced by Moorish and Jewish recipes. And then after that, St. Julivert Fishery, a seafood restaurant inspired by the Spanish seaside. So I really enjoyed my interview with Alex. I think you are going to enjoy it as well. So you want to listen? Yep. Can't wait. All right, here we go. If you want to shout out to Andrea, it's at Andrea Sundell on Instagram. 
Play Restaurant, P-L-A-J, or at Stockholm Restaurant. Let's go. All right, welcome back. I am here with Chef Alex Reich. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for agreeing to do this. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. So, all right, here we go. So I love to ask this question to chefs. Who cooked growing up and what did they make? My mom cooked growing up almost exclusively when I was a young child. And then as time went on, she continued to cook every night, but occasionally my dad would like step in. He would have his like dishes. And this was where? My parents are from Argentina, okay. but I grew up in Minneapolis. Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah. Where in Argentina are they from? My mom's from Rosario and my dad's from Bahia Blanca. So important question. Do you like Argentinian pizza? I love Argentinian pizza, but it depends on where which pizzeria because it's not all created equal. But Argentine pizza or Argentinian as, as a true Argentine would say. Right. Up until recently, it was some of the best pizza I ever knew. That's a okay. question. Are you familiar? We have friends from Argentina and it's always a contention point is is the pizza. Because you don't like it. Some pizza. people like it and some people don't. And I think I like it was thin. Like then when they do the Neapolitan and my yeah. dad grew up eating like uh, Faina, which is like a, like a, that chickpea stuff, uh-huh. you know, with uh-huh. the, so I, I like Argentine pizza, but I noticed the last time I was there that like so many things in Argentina, it was very diluted and mm. bad. So mm. I'm hope, maybe it'll have a, you know, they'll revive, a resurgence. revive, because they have a strong pizza tradition. I just, it started getting thick. Like, I started going Chicago style last time I was there, which is a long time ago. Going rogue. So I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so continue on. So, up until a certain point, it was mom. Yeah, it was mostly my mom. And my mom would make much more elaborate things than mm-hmm. my mom. Uh, pretty early on when I was little, went back to school. But I think my dad had, like, a kind of traditional relationship with with who was doing the cooking. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, my mom truly was super mom. She was, like, going back to school in a language she didn't speak. Mm. Then she like... What was she studying? She was studying dentistry. Oh, wow. Because she came here when she was 26 years old, and she was already a dentist. She's been practicing for two years. Yeah. But they wouldn't accredit her once they decided to stay. Because they also weren't going to stay. They were going to go back. But then the the political situation in Argentina got really scary. And so they um, they decided to stay. and, And they wouldn't give her credit for her professional title because mm. she you know the university there you, you jump right in right and so she did another she did grad school she just did i think they gave her credit for college and she had to do grad school she was busy she was Mom really was busy, busy. Yeah. she yeah. was yeah. i think like incredibly fearless yeah you know she did not speak english yeah and um and she always said I failed all my papers because I couldn't write them. You mm. know, she was like, I could do the technical work, but and, she like, passed clinical work. Oh, okay. she finally, yeah. yeah, I think she passed with flying. Yeah. I remember being at her graduation and like giving her flowers Aww. and stuff. But um, and then who? And but then so she was cooking who, that yeah. whole time and like really elaborate things. Right. Like we would make homemade gnocchi. Yeah. We would make tortellini. Yeah. We would make kreplach because my parents are also Jewish. So oh, like, uh huh. We had a ton of Italian food Asa- and a ton of. Argent, like straight up Argentine food and then a lot of pasta uh-huh. and we made it all. That's awesome. And then, so who else cooked? You said dad cooked some. My dad just, like started getting into this phase where he would like, you know, grill stuff mm-hmm. or as I got older, cause we also had like more of a yard. Like, I mean, they started to like sort of, you know, do a little bit better in life and got a grill. <laughs> so, but, <laughs> um, 
Yeah, my dad would become like very gourmand. Like he had like a lot of opinions about food and he really was very open-minded about food. Both of my parents were, which is, you know, significant coming from a, a pretty conservative food culture yeah. in Argentina. So they were very experimental at home and Were at they out. able to get what they needed in Minneapolis? Yeah, my mom would found this like butcher. I remember we'd yeah. go to Monaco's, we'd go to an Italian butcher or, uh-huh. the, or the Polish butcher. And we would buy this stuff. I remember the guy always called my mom sweetie. It was, I was like, do you like it when he calls you sweetie? And I, and I remember coming home and being like, the guy at the butcher called mom, like, you know, called mommy right, honey. Right. Like, I thought they were like having the, an affair, the affair. or something. Yeah. yeah. And, and, now, and now, you know, and now that doesn't, that doesn't work anymore. You know, those, those things don't work anymore. it still does. Yeah, and it wouldn't yeah. offend me if it was yeah. my butcher. I mean. Right. Right. Um, you know, it's good to know your butcher. Right. It's, you know, that's <laughs> that's a life lesson. So we would go all the way out to like St. Paul to find sausage that didn't have fennel in it. Oh, right. Because sure. Argentine, like, chorizo right. never thing. had fennel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Did you have the special salt that you needed? The special Argentinian salt? We didn't. We just sal, sal gorda, uh-huh. like we call it, right? Like fat salt. Yeah. And then we just use a lot of kosher salt, but no, I mean, I don't remember. So do you have Jewish food memories as well from growing up? Yeah, but they were all really conflated for me. Like, Mm. I didn't know. I always thought, oh, you know, what I really like is Argentine food. And Mm -hmm. I didn't realize what was Jewish and what was indigenous, what was Spanish and what was Italian. And in fact, when I started to like answer those questions for myself or they just started to reveal themselves to me Mm -hmm. through just exploring food, like. I mean, food was a really big deal at my house. So, you know, I always had like those time life books, mm. and, you know, my mom, you know, would like, get yeah, like all the little books with all the different cuisines and all the pictures. And I loved looking at mm. those. So I started, you know, very early on to like be able to like sort of parse out like, you know, what things were. And it was, That's I great. remember like making that connection, like, oh, you know, these are discrete dishes that belong to different cultures that all ended up in Argentina. Like mm. they're not, it's not like complete like fusion, you mm-hmm, know, like. Mm-hmm. You know, at the only well, at some point it, they become part of the part of the fabric of the of the they of do, the country. But the only truly like indigenous like dishes that we ever ate were like umitas or mm-hmm. like creamed corn, basically variations on creamed corn, mm-hmm. and and locro, uh, which is like a hominy dish. Mm. But other than that, it was like you know even the asado or like mm-hmm. the meat, like that felt. It's very Argentine, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but what was really distinctive about the way that we ate meat was that we ate every part of it. You know, right. we would have the achudas, so like right. we'd have like, you know, the intestines, mm-hmm. which you know some people call it like chitterlings mm-hmm. or whatever. Mollejas and mollejas, yeah, yeah the, the um, delicious. Bread, by the way, a lot of blood sausage, yeah. yeah. Not that not the healthiest like lifestyle no. food, well, but like I hey, we we I grew up eating all better than processed stuff. foods, you know. Yeah, uh, no, I didn't grow up on processed food. So I mean, with, aside from like the regular sort of hot dog here and there, that and that's already fantastic, you yeah. know that that your parents weren't feeding you any of that. So okay, and then how did you fall into Spanish? Well, but, and and even more specifically Basque. My mom cooked a lot of Spanish dishes. Mm-hmm. They were like bastardized mm-hmm. Spanish dishes. One of my dad's specialties was pescado a la vasca. Mm-hmm. He would like insist that the, you know, that sort of golden garlic, the refrito de ajo, mm-hmm. which we talk about a lot in our book. You know, up up until I really started learning about Basque food, I really believed that like the Basques always burned their garlic. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad, you know, my dad would be like, it's the pescado la vasca. And what he was really doing was not really making pescado la vasca. He was making, first of all, he was 
burning garlic. Mm. And second of all, he was adding pimenton to it, which is more like an ajada, which mm-hmm. is more of like a Galician dish. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of Galicians in Argentina too. Mm. But he I would call it pescado a la vasca. Like it mm. was like a butterfly fish mm-hmm. with like this crispy garlic stuff on top of it. And the mm-hmm. garlic was just like two shades too crispy, like mm. kind of bitter. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then he would burn the pimenton too. And my yep. dad's like not a terrible cook, but like for some reason this dish, like it takes a lot of finesse and that's what you learn about bass cooking. Mm-hmm. And the reason I find bass cooking just so amazing is because it requires so much finesse and it's so restrained. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you have to respect that restraint. Like it's very modest and um, very technical. But so I always grew up eating Spanish food, making paella with my mm-hmm, mom. Like mm-hmm. those were like, um, you know, those were party dishes for us. My sure. mom would have a million people over and she'd like, you know, make paella. Sure. Um, it was more like arrozabanda again. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. I started to like parse out like what, what was different about, first of all, my mom was an extraordinary cook and she didn't want like all the seafood to give itself up to the rice. Mm-hmm. So she wanted to respect the rice and respect the seafood. So she would always like cook all of the stuff separately and then grab all those juices and then make the rice with that and then just sort of like bury like the treasures in mm. there and everything would be in su punto. Right. And like that's how I learned how to cook. Those like really small details. But like right. nobody really does that with the paella in Spain. And usually the seafood's always overcooked if it's seafood at all. And so I, I just was always very curious about all cuisines that I came across and mm. Spanish included. But then when I went to culinary school, uh, I read a food arts magazine that was talking about uh, Ferran Adria's. Mm-hmm. I think it was like a cappuccino, like some kind of foamy, like smoked thing. But it made so much sense to me, like that sort of distillation of flavor. Because again, that's like how my mom cooked. It was mm-hmm. like, capture all the juices, make sure you don't throw anything away, like, you know, reduce it down, strain it, Scientific put it back. In a way. Yeah, I always yeah. had a real brain yeah. for that kind of stuff. I had a Harold McGee, like, you know, very, like when it first came out, like uh-huh, the first edition, uh-huh. like no one was talking and about it. And you're like nodding your head as you're turning the It was in pages. our bathroom. Yeah, yeah. And my, me, me and my roommates, you know, like I lived in a house full of, uh, young people in seattle like uh-huh. it's very like sort of singles meets uh-huh. uh, melrose singles. place that's funny and uh-huh. uh and yeah uh, on food and cooking was was in the bathroom that's awesome yeah it's great so and then was it oh so then i became obsessed with with spain and uh-huh. i wanted to go to spain uh-huh. but i couldn't afford to go and i didn't have any connections and so there was a teacher at the culinary institute who told me no, he told a friend of mine that there was a Spanish restaurant opening in, in New York on Hudson Street. Mm. And did I want to go and, and see about a job? And mm. I was planning on going back to Seattle, but I did go see about a job. And I met my husband there. Ah. In, in, in which restaurant was this? It was called Megas. Uh-huh. Mega, oh, like witches. Yes. Yeah, well, so that was the Galician, other part. It was that a Galician was so, rest, restaurant. But it pretended to be a Basque restaurant, and the chef was Basque. And that, no, but they, so, that was really hilarious, actually, we, because yeah. I was like, I get this place. Yeah, the yeah, Argentines yeah, 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 like yeah. want to be Basque yeah, yeah, and then yeah. they're Galician. And then I yeah. just totally got yeah, it. Yeah, no, that like, makes sense. Yeah. And other regions do claim witches too. But for me, because uh, the way that I learned is mainly Galicia and Megas. Well, so, so exactly. Yeah. But the funny thing about Megas was I think it was just like sort of a ripoff of like Aquilarre. Yeah. And, you know, okay, like, sure. Oh, Aquilarre is already right. taken in the Basque country. Yeah. So we'll yeah. just call it Megas. What year was, like, what year was this? But I this was uh, 98. Okay. No, 99. Okay. Which yeah. is a good time. You know, things are, pe- people, the, the Spanish are f- like, kind of like finally coming to well, the we party. All, we couldn't get good ham yeah. at the time. Yeah. And, um, and, but yeah, other than that, like there was, there were possibilities and, yeah. and people were starting to value, people were starting to value traditional Spanish. I, well, no, that's not true. I think we did that. I think we made people value traditional Spanish mm-hmm. food and the tapas 
I wouldn't say tapas. Style. The current expression of tapas yeah. and tapas as a creative sort of form. Right. I right. think we brought that to New York and right. and even and back and forth because it was a time when people were only were only interested in vanguard cuisine. Sure. And so when I would go back to Spain with Edder, I was like, I like the vanguard cuisine, but no one, you know, like no. No one was expressing creativity and that spirit like mm. through tapas. Like mm. all the tapas places here were like super retro. Mm-hmm. You know, they even had Mexican food on them. Mm-hmm. Which, right? Funnily enough, now I use Mexican flavors a lot, but you take you can take those liberties if you really know what you're doing. Like, no, you cannot just like do that if you if you haven't put your time in. You know what? And and I'll agree with that statement 100. So it always fascinates me. You know, because we were as well doing span. Well, we're doing Spanish food outside of Spain. Right. You're doing Basque food outside of the Basque country. And, you know, so already you have to be certain of your voice. Right. And then, you know, we have customers come in sometimes and they, you know, may not see what we're doing as what they experienced in Spain. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes a question comes up with a, a liberal use of an ingredient here or there. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not typically Spanish. But I learned a lot of those fusion techniques in Spain. You know? Sure, there's that. I mean, you have more freedom. I always used to say, Edder can do whatever he wants. I need to be more restrained. But in a cuisine like the Basque cuisine, I mean, Basques have always been incredibly innovative and mm-hmm. have always embraced change and mm-hmm. still maintained a very strong sense of identity. Mm-hmm. And I actually feel like that's kind of, that's the art, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's the touch. And there's an element of fun in yeah. it. You know, it's playful. Or, yeah. or it can be playful. I guess for me, like, you can be, like, sort of multi-regional Spanish or just be, like, I'm doing tapas and they're my tapas mm-hmm, and they're original mm-hmm. and like that's fine. But if you're really calling yourself a Basque restaurant, mm-hmm. you, then you're you sp- best be Basque. Yeah, I think yeah. because otherwise you're doing like everybody who's really trying to right the wrongs a disservice. Okay, so you met your husband and then I assume you started going to Spain and to the Basque country a lot. Yes. Okay, so tell me about those trips and they're things just that you like. Learned, I mean, you know? you know, we've always been like very, very hard working and Mm -hmm. um we work a lot Mm -hmm. and then um we would basically like quit our jobs or you know and then go Mm -hmm. for a while or get fired and go or like (laughs) or not take a job you know and go and um those were just you know um trips like pleasure trips never worked there i always just we just traveled and ate and traveled and ate and stayed at his house get inspiration where where is he from in the best country he's from bilbao oh he went to uh culinary school in san sebastian okay and then he worked did he go to the the bass culinary no because i wasn't there but it was the culinary school Mm -hmm. and then he worked in catalonia and he actually worked at maspao with uh chavi sacrista who was like Mm. the first chef de cuisine el bouillie and they're still old friends and he's in parrilla now but so he cooked in catalonia mostly and then uh, went down to Mallorca and cooked down there. And then back to Barcelona and worked with Carlos Avellan. And then he came here mm. and opened Megas. So, so you kind of touched on this already about your thoughts about cooking Basque cuisine outside of the Basque country. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it always comes up for us who cook, a, a, you know, a region or a, or a country's cuisine outside of that original country. So, so, so talk about that a little bit. I'm pretty supremely confident mm. about our cooking. Mm. I think we, I think we cook at a high level. I think we're we're creative. We're comfortable in our creativity. I don't want to say I have nothing to prove, but like I, I think we've proven it. It's we've been doing this for so long, and it's so honest what we do that like it's. I don't think it's like questionable. I think anybody who would 
it, I think it's sort of above reproach. Like you could say you don't like a dish or you don't like what we're doing, but you cannot say that it's not honest. And um, with regard to understanding the Basque cuisine and, and really any regional cuisine of Spain that I know about, and mm -hmm. I'm always learning new ones, mm -hmm. like micro-regionality and um, new dishes and stuff. I have a humongous repertoire, humongous. And um, I don't say that lately. It's just, it, it's a lifetime. And that repertoire is also informed by my life experience traveling through other places that Spaniards have been. And so I think I understand like what came from Spain, what came from the Colombian exchange, what, you know, what those legacies are. And, and I think understanding that stuff so deeply, like I can make really good choices about how to respect tradition mm -hmm. and also how to move forward. Like I don't want to make editors aunt. I do want to make editors aunt's ensaladilla rusa. And I do, but I, what I've decided is what are the things that make her ensaladilla good? or better than others that I've tried. And I pick those things. But the things that make her ensaladilla better than others is not using mayonnaise from the jar. Right. So I'm going to make those choices. Sure. And so, yes, it's Lourdes' ensaladilla rusa, but really right. it's uh, it's Lourdes plus us and, you know, 20 years of experience. Right, or, right. You know what I'm saying? So I feel really comfortable that we not only respect and honor, but also are pushing the conversation around right. these dishes. And we have signature dishes. You know, here we do it in chibidona and cebollado, which is uh -huh. usually like a really muddy, dark, rich dish. And it's kind of like squid in its ink without the squid. I mean, without the ink, rather. Mm. And we do a very ethereal, white version of it. And any boss person who comes and tastes that dish here would be like, Oh, I totally get how this is that dish, but it doesn't look like that mm. dish. It doesn't, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and we don't even have squid and ink here that often. We do it occasionally. But one of the reasons we don't have it is because I wanted to have that dish. And they're similar dishes. It's just sort of a white version. And I think by serving that dish, I think it's like a very resting, not only beautiful, but also incredibly tasty and special and only lives here because mm. it's ours. It's unique. And it's unique. It's transporting and it also, it's sort of defiant, which Basques are, and, um, you know, like non-compliant and, mm -hmm. you know, doesn't non-prescriptive. Yeah. Right. And I think that is a very Basque spirit. And then you taste it. It tastes exactly like you beat on it and say, well, yeah, those, mm. but light, like the mm. progressive, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, and I think that like touch runs through all of our food. And, and I think that I'm always questioning, you know, what, what's worth preserving and what's not. And when I go there, I'll eat very traditional dishes. And it's not like I think there's, you know, anything wrong with them or they're... Well, it's just like here, there's going to yeah. be food that you like and food that you don't like. You know, people who take more care and people who don't take as much care, people who use better ingredients, people who don't, you know, it's... Right, it's, it's, or like, you know, a lot of times when you have like a peel-peel there, it's changing because mm -hmm. I think people have started to embrace also that there are traditional past dishes that are worth sort of enveloping and like you like sort of redefining the luxury around those dishes mm -hmm. and so like peel peel used to be this dish that so loved mm -hmm. such a Vizcaino dish but like often was made with like the tail pieces and like sort of the dry like mm -hmm. sort of not best cuts 
and you know the parts that have like a lot of sort of skin to meat ratio because that's where all the right, gelatin where the gel is. Comes from, yeah. But now you see, and but, but you know when we wanted to express that dish, it's such a polarizing dish. It's so elegant, but it's so polarizing that I knew that we had to serve the moro, like we had to serve it with like the most succulent mm-hmm, part of mm-hmm. the cod, not you know those like you know secondary sort of leather pieces, secondary kinda, yeah, pieces yeah, we yeah. use those we use everything sure, and it is sure and when we make peel peels out of them even but like for me to just serve peel peel just fish and sauce as my friend jason stanhope would say uh-huh. it had to be the you know the sort of most like beautiful cut with right. the most beautiful peel well, peel. well, well spanish cuisine also in a sense so minimalist in basque cuisine yeah it, it doesn't have a ton of ingredients no. so those ingredients in that dish better be fantastic they better yeah. be fantastic, and also the ingredients are incredibly like elastic, is what mm-hmm. I call them. Like I can't figure out. It's not that I can't figure out. I'm in love with how many flavors mm-hmm. and how many mm-hmm. different pers- like mouthfeels mm-hmm. and perceptions mm-hmm. you can get out of like five ingredients. Sure, sure. It's and I think like versatile, super versatile, yeah. Versatile and also compelling, like deep, like so deep for me. Mm. I like. I just can't get enough of it. And that's like why, you know, I really wanted us to, I wanted Adder to open a restaurant that was like really about his home because I think it also, I think it's really inspiring, but also you know, really keeps you connected to your culture. And I think that's one of the most important things when you're an immigrant mm-hmm. to do. Like it's something that my parents did for me. And I have friends who, whose parents were from the same place as my parents and from other places who don't have that connection. And I think it's a source of trauma, like to not be connected to wherever you're from. So do you have trouble getting the ingredients that you need outside of the Basque country here? No, because I think, you know, when the Basques were there, they were using what was at hand. Mm -hmm. And in fact, because we couldn't get stuff, we had to learn how to make our own. And now I can get that stuff and I Mm. still make our own. Mm. Mm. I mean, sometimes we make a choice and we'll be like, oh, you know, now we can get, I don't know, Piquillo pepper is a terrible example because there's been piquillo since right. we started this, but like only just then. But, uh, but like, you know, chorizo peppers, I can get them all the time now. We used to try oh, yeah. to get them and they would be like all like dried out uh-huh. and like really desiccated, uh-huh. not good, not pulpy. And now I could get good ones, but we've, we've figured out our own way and I like yeah, our way Yeah, that's usually one of those things I like shove into my suitcase when I'm coming yeah. back from Spain, you know? You can make lots of adjustments and those adjustments are in the same spirit okay. as, you know, a Basque person would hear what you don't want to do is choose bad ingredients because that is antithetical to to the Basque way. You're right. So one of the many aspects to running a restaurant is food. There's also more things. And, and I asked you before uh, about some things that you've learned working in restaurant kitchens. I've learned patience. (laughs) I've also learned hustle. Uh-huh. Like there was, you know, there's like a tension between the two, right? Uh-huh. I've learned kindness, and I've also, you know, learned to be pretty tough. Yeah. And I th- I'm a pretty serious person, and uh-huh. I'm very thoughtful when I say I'm thoughtful. I mean, I think I'm fair, and I think about others, but I'm more when I say thoughtful. I mean, I think I'm, I have a pretty intellectual, like brainy approach uh, to food. Like I have a vision, and I want it. I want to see it through. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons we have a lot of restaurants is I have a lot of ideas, and I want to see them live somewhere. Have you ever failed? Failed with a vision? 
I don't consider that failing. I'm like this whole failing up thing. I think is bullshit. <laughs> like I, first what of all, I think. Up? What do you mean like, failing up? Failing up. This is like a thing that people say now. It's like basically a hashtag. Like, oh, is it failing I, yeah. up? Like I failed and then I came out of it and I was better for it. And I like. Ah, I don't. Mean, about, but so, okay, so tell me about that. That's interesting. Like how? Well, you, I mean, or, I don't or, use or that vocabulary. That's don't like not my. Vocabulary. How you don't believe in it? Well, first of all, I think you play to win, and like you do the best that you can. And um, you don't sometimes think you learn from your mistakes. Absolutely, yeah. but you don't have to fail. But just because oh, you you're you learning along the way, you don't have to call it a fail. And that's why I just don't like that feeling right, up, right, right, like right, 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 right. because it's just like that whole vocabulary of failure. Right. It's or just under learning. It just goes under learning for you, right? Yeah. And also, right. usually, uh, like under an intuitive gut feeling that I should have listened to, and I usually, usually when when I fail at something, it's because I'm not speaking to my inner. Jiminy Cricket or whatever, <laughs> like it is. You know, like I, we opened a coffee shop that we we subsequently closed and opened the fish place that was always meant to be there. Uh-huh. And I did it because I think I was listening a little too much to this idea of like developing talent and creating opportunities for your cooks. Mm-hmm. And it, that just because you're doing that doesn't mean that you design a concept around necessarily their interest if you don't aren't obsessed with coffee. And I was not obsessed with coffee. I... Open a coffee shop because it had been a pre-existing coffee shop. I didn't have enough money to renovate the place. The woman who sold it to us, like, told us, like, five days before she was getting out of the business that it was available. It was right next to my other restaurant. Mm. And I wanted to put I wanted to put what's there now in it, but I didn't have the resources. And I did have staff that was very sort of, like, coffee and pastry interested. Mm-hmm. And I do have a love affair with coffee shops. And when I was a young person, I really thought that I would move to Italy and I wanted to like import espresso and I wanted to create an espresso revolution. But I'm much older now and that was not any longer in my dream. And I think, you know, coffee shops, like that kind of coffee shop that I wanted to open was like super nostalgic. I wanted us to make everything. We made everything except for, you know, some a couple of bread items and, and that business is you know it's, it's you have to see a lot of people i mean you have to see a lot of people you during the day because s- the average ticket is low and especially if you're making everything by scratch there's a lot of labor involved so there's that yeah. and then also i like coffee and i like food but i don't love coffee culture i just don't it's there's so much super super interesting stuff and for me coffee is like something that is not a rabbit hole for me hmm like, do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I wasn't really obsessed with, like, the toast of the beans and how to pull the thing. And, I mean, I could tell when someone wasn't pulling the shot right because it didn't taste good. Right, right. Or when someone was overheating the milk. But I didn't really want to become a bar. My inner barista did not. I didn't want to jump back there with them right. and do it. Do you know what I mean? I didn't have a yeah. vision. I, I yeah. was, like, really into buying the right yeah. glassware for the cortado because yeah. I felt like it had to be that. And I really wanted to have this cookie and this coffee cake and this pancake thing that I created. Uh-huh. And I wanted to have Medi-Lunas. all the... What? <laughs> Medialunas. <laughs> yeah, well, we didn't have those, but we had uh, we did empanadas, and uh-huh. we did, like, things that I, you know, wanted to have, because it was more, it was like a little bit of lunch and stuff. And I was really obsessed with those details. I didn't really want to be an employer of baristas. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's good, you know, you... you it's, <laughs> I it's, learned, it's, you learned, right? Like, you learned. Yeah, and um, much happier now that I don't have it, but I don't... I don't particularly consider that a failure. I've also been super wronged and like betrayed by people that I've been in business with or have worked Mm. for me, but I don't consider those my failures. That's their failures and they'll figure it out. Of course, of course, and you were affected by it. Yeah, Yeah. deeply. 
So, <laughs> so, and then you work with your husband. Mm-hmm. How is that working um, with someone that you live with? It's hard, yeah. but I, I mean, I don't know him much else. I mean, we've been together since, you know, 1999. What is mm, that? Long how time. long is that? Like 20 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've been married for 17 years. We mm. have two kids together. Mm. We're really connected. Like really, really connected, which is not to say we don't have conflict. We do. Right. Have, we have a ton. Right. And we, and you know, Are you, I and think there's not a lot of boundaries in kitchens. So like to begin with. And so like, yeah, people have seen some major fighting in the room. Yeah. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean that everything's tumbling down. Sometimes a fight is just a fight. Who's the first one? Like when you're at home and you're both talking about work, who's the first one to say like, okay, enough? Him. <laughs> he's really good at time management and he's not on his phone all the time. Uh-huh. And he's really an amazing father and he's really a sweet, like kind. He's like a really like great husband and friend. Mm. And he cares about all those things so much and he doesn't get as carried away as I do. Like I'm like much more like space age me. Mm. He's very disciplined. Mm. Mm. I mean, it's good because you know, you trust that person. And if everything else falls away, there's always one person in your, in your business world that you can trust. Right. And, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he's like an incredible ally and he's also always been like in such an amazing supportive person of like, I don't think he envisioned this life for himself at all. Oh no. Um, no, I mean, I think he wanted to travel and have adventures and cook. He's mm. like that ultimate. He's very organized, super fast. He loves like the line. He loves mm-hmm. what we call the mambo. Mm-hmm. And he's really good at learning. What's the mambo? Like like the pulse the of the dance. kitchen. Yeah, uh, the he rhythm. Loves, yeah, he loves That's that. Funny. And I think, you know, it's been a hard transition for him for sure to like get involved in more operational stuff. And But I don't, yeah, I don't know that it was a priority for him at all ever to own restaurants. He's like, I sort of. I don't want to say I pushed him, but choosing me meant choosing this because this is like for sure, like in my DNA. And it's in his as well. But I just don't think that like, I don't think he even had this idea that you necessarily own a restaurant. And I didn't even care if I owned like a bar or like a cafe. Like I said, I, that was what I thought, you know, when I was younger. Mm-hmm. But I always wanted to, you know, own my own restaurant and be in control of the menus and what was served and what it was served on. And, yeah, because you put your name on it. It's, it's your signature. I just feel like you know? I need to express myself that way. Mm-hmm. That's like, it's my medium. Mm. But I think he he would be more okay expressing someone else's vision and just being a partner in in someone else's sort of idea than I would. Like, I could not do that for very long. Mm. I could consult, you mm-hmm, know, like, and mm-hmm. I did, and I do and then, still. And then walk away kind of thing. And also just yeah. that's fun. I'm yeah. very pragmatic. Just yeah. because I'm, like, dreamy doesn't mean I'm not pragmatic. Sure. I have really good systems. And, like, I, if somebody said, you know, you know, can you come and, like, you know, help me build a taqueria, that would be a dream come true for me. I would love it. Mm. Or, um, you know, we want to do an Italian restaurant. Like, I know you lived in Italy, like, do you want to like write the menu and like give us, you know, 50 specials or whatever? Cause I used to do that. That was the work I did before mm. we opened our own restaurant. Mm. And I find it really satisfying cause you're not, you're not you super preoccupied too. with, um, you know, like the nuts and bolts. Yeah. yeah. And it's fun. It's fun to think about other things. And, you know, sometimes I've even traveled and gotten to like mm. do research That's or awesome. like, yeah, it's fun. And, and it a- takes you out of yourself and it's not, it's not really about you at all. Mm-hmm. And so even when things don't go exactly as you want, and then also you learn. Well, and then at some you bring point, those, the, the, those nuggets of wisdom back with you, back right. into your own 
your own stores. And and when our and when our bodies break at some point, you know, we can do those those consultings even more. I hope so. <laughs> I haven't done any in a while. I would like to do more. I, I would like to do more of that kind of work. Maybe I will soon. We've been pretty focused on like just You've been pretty busy. Yeah. We have kids too. So. so so I asked you a couple of soapbox career advice pieces and you and you said something very interesting. I tell can't the tr- what I tell, tell the truth, be the truth. Yeah. Tell the truth, be the truth. And I thought that that, uh, I mean, tell the truth, you know, like it's kind of self-explanatory. Yeah. Yeah. But but be the truth is. I feel like there's this whole culture of like false modesty that I'm constantly hearing in our, you know, I would attribute to our profession, but more to like white men in our profession, like just false humility. And I'm like, if you were really humble, you would include more people or you would would share like the food space more. Mm, mm. And so if you're not modest, don't act modest sure sure if you're not humble don't pretend that you're humble like just be honest Mm, mm. and i don't think that that's not how people i mean i think most people would want to be that way i mean Mm -hmm. i want to be that way but i think when you have strong opinions about how things should be and you want to and you're driven like i i'm not the most ambitious person in the world but i'm very driven to like to see these things through and to see them happen and Mm -hmm. make it, it you know it just gives me a lot of um, pleasure and satisfaction and I just I mean I don't know I think I think that we are extraordinarily honest in the food that we serve and the way that we are with people mm. and um, I I like it when people are like that way with me and I prefer that I to agree. be the culture of of our industry like I feel much more in a community of people when the people that I'm hanging out with in my industry are that way mm-hmm. and I'm you know I have a lot of really significant amazing relationships that i got through this industry but i also prefer the profession like inside the restaurant those relationships more than you know the industry as a whole like i feel like it's just starting like when i say you know tell the truth and be the truth it's also change yourself and be the change Mm -hmm. you know like there's so many conversations about all the challenges that we have ahead of us and i just i you know i like seeing people change themselves i think restaurants are places where people can really like redeem themselves sure lost souls can come there's a lot of conversation also about how much harm you know restaurants bring to people but i think restaurants can really save people too and they well, they and do on a regular basis. Yeah, and it's an industry where you can come and with the right attitude, you can start out at the bottom, learn a skill, and move your way up with without much formal book education. You know, and, find, and you yeah. can't do that in every. In, in I mean, you can't just you know, you can't be a dentist that way. No. You know, there's not a lot of risk up front. You know, you don't have to take out loans to come and start to learn your way through the restaurant. Now you have to have the desire mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah. And you have to, I mean, it's like a chip, but I think some people don't even realize they have it. And then they end up, you know, in a restaurant by accident and, and it just consumes them. And it sounds like you're also saying you don't need to know everything, but maybe you need to know enough to know that you don't know everything. Right. Well, there's that. And also just be on a, you know, be on a journey, like whatever that journey is. Don't let like the culture of one kitchen. I mean, I was going to say destroy your humanity, but then, you know, Conversely, it could make your humanity as well. You know, like when if you've come from a place that's unkind and someone's kind to you, right? It'll change you, right. you know. And but I think the opposite is true too. And I think when you know when you're confronted with bad people doing bad things, there's an opportunity to like sure. to throw a wall up and say, not mm-hmm. not here, not to me, or mm-hmm. whatever. And you know that I think is is good for 
for everyone, including yourself. I've had a lot of conversations with chefs who, and especially chefs who are a little bit older, uh, who are women or who are the other box, not white. And they had uh, way different experiences in kitchens. They had to prove themselves twice as hard. They had to develop a voice that was uh, a lot more guarded and a lot more how they were just automatically getting treated by, you know, by not being like a white man in the kitchen. And and I think that's changing more than it has been in the past. Um, I had a really great conversation with Joyce Goldstein, who mm-hmm. is a West Coast chef and and cookbook author, and she's fantastic. And she did a, a, a great book uh, called The California Food Revolution, and she interviewed a lot of uh, male chefs and female chefs, and she she started to distill the the difference between male-run kitchens and female-run kitchens. And, you know, male-run kitchens tended to be more more hierarch- hierarchy, mm-hmm. and female kitchens tended to have a lot more collaboration and, and compassion. And I love that, you know. And she says, you know, it's, and it's certainly changing now, right, where I think mm-hmm. we're finally starting, you know, in some places at least to get a little bit more aware. Um, and I think it depends on where you are, right, mm-hmm. and where you're geographically located. But, yeah, it's... Uh, I think especially if you're entering into the kitchen into the kitchen as, you know, like a white man, you end up thinking that, oh, maybe things are a little bit easier, you know, but it's just the fact that maybe you're getting treated a little bit easier sometimes. Kitchen work is you know? hard for anyone, I think. I mean, for me, what was I never felt like or maybe like accepted quick in some I, kitchens that, accepted more quickly. Yeah, and I know? think you no know, your opinion was respected like when I mean, men speak with absolutely no authority, <laughs> especially white ones, about things. I mean, I would just be like, what? Like, you know, the stuff you hear, right. like, you know, young male right. cooks say <laughs> that is so wrong. And you just like, and sometimes I'm like, now I, you know, in my kitchens, I will tell people why. I like to always tell people why I make the choice that I make. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes they think I'm just like a pain in the ass and like really propose. But I'm like, I want you to know why, you know, why I'm salting it now Mm -hmm. and not then Mm -hmm. and not later. Or like, I want you to know, you know, why we make mayonnaise this way or like why we. And because I think that, you know. Power, like you know, useful and powerful. Well, it's, I, it's an opportunity it, to learn too right. for for them, you know. Right, but I understand why they think I can be boring or like you know <laughs> oh, such a bore. But um, but, well, but but I will you know. say, I mean, sometimes I remember you know as a young cook, like you know, even because I didn't get to always be on the hotline or like learn those skills of like you know being a great line cook, mm-hmm. I was still paying a lot of attention, mm. and because I wasn't so caught up in all this sort of like technical stuff. I was paying a lot of attention to when people were putting things in the pan, when the fucking pan was catching on fire. I was like, I don't want to eat that squid. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, these flare ups and like all this stuff that you see all the time. Like Mm -hmm. when you're on the other side, like on the, in the salad section, Mm -hmm. like you're watching these people cook and you can tell which dish you'd want to eat, Mm -hmm. which dish you want to, wouldn't want to eat. Sure. And like who puts too much oil in the pan, you know, if it's caught on fire, if, you know, something with garlic got too dark. Right. If the things went in the pan in the right order. Right. But also you hear these conversations and like, you don't even want to correct them because you're just like, well, you know, like right. you don't even deserve to know. <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, and you like, can't, you can't like, fight every battle, you know, well, you can, but also you're just kind of like, they're you know speaking with such authority about something yeah. you clearly know nothing about, but right. somebody is giving them a chance to like, both serve their food and ruin their food on yeah. a daily basis yeah. just by virtue of their gender and their 
and often they're and it not even generally it's sometimes just personality related but like their vaingloriousness uh-huh, uh-huh. you know like their their false confidence uh-huh. talk about false you know modesty yeah false confidence is like well there's damning. <laughs> those things eventually end up coming out in the wash don't you think they so? do at 100%. some point at oh my god 100 you know um, that's like the fun. That's like the most fun cook conversation ever. You know, it's always like, remember when so and so, like, you know, like there's always a story. You right, know, like, right, right, right. <laughs> I'm sure people have stories like that about me. No, no. I mean, you know, everybody's got, I guess, their own experience <laughs> stories, right? So, so I asked you about issues that food professionals should take head on. And I think that this is certainly, you know, one of them for sure. You have a lot of things that, that you're really passionate about, like using invasive species. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So tell me about that. Well, I think it's just because I'm now um, running a fish restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I was always like doing stuff like bringing purslane back from the farmer's market or mm-hmm. even like picking it or whatever. But um, and then, you know, for a while we worked with this girl from New Jersey who was a forager and she would bring papa and she would bring like, you know, wine berries and these things that are like basically species that are not necessarily native. Mm-hmm. And so, that, you know, it's good to pick them and so that they don't encroach on stuff. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was, you know, like really fascinating and interesting. And then um, now these conversations around seaweed. Mm. Uh, because they clean our waters and oysters and things like that, mm-hmm. and so meaning I've, like should we should we be taking it? Yeah, yeah, we should. We should be growing them and taking them yeah. because they filter our water and you know they create like you know they're they're creating equilibrium. So yes, like using those things and then fish that are plentiful and local. You know, I'm interested in using like lionfish and stuff mm-hmm. because I think you just see it. Like it, I notice it. You know, even on an insect level you see insects that like just don't belong here and haven't you know haven't been here traditionally and i think if we could find ways to use them or eat them that would help yeah. control everything no i think that's I a mean, great it's idea just, you know one ecosystem helpful foraging yeah yeah but mm. just like you know get, like make it really popular like like you know make it be the new the new goat cheese or something, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like if we could also luxuriate those things that are plentiful. Sure. Well, see, um, seaweed is great. I remember, yeah. so I did a stage at a restaurant in uh, Galicia where they used, it was only seafood. There was no menu. And um, they got in every day, like six different kinds of fresh seaweed. And there's a huge like seaweed. Like, it's giant. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's amazing. So there was this one, especially it's called a uh, codium. Uh-huh. That um, it looks like kind of like uh, like dreads, like like tubular kind of like tubular strands. Yeah, and the flavor was so remarkable. They actually used it to flavor a broth. They made like a codium what? broth, and there wasn't even any of like it wasn't recognizable as seaweed, you know. And I think a lot of the times, one of the coolest things about seaweed is you know certainly the nutrition, but but it's fun and it and it looks cool and it's the texture is interesting. Textures but, are great. But yeah. the, the this was only specifically used for the flavor and like really like like nothing what else. What color was it? I mean, it was kind of like a dark green. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even necessarily a pretty color, but the flavor was so mm-hmm. like meaty and rich. It's not the one with eat. No. Mm-mm. It's like a pasta. Yeah, it we used to do. It, it looks like a like a mop, like almost like a mop, like a mop. You know, I love kombu. I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a big fan of that, or like the labors. Um, recently, we've been playing with this other new stuff from Maine too that comes frozen. Mm-hmm. Like, 
um, as opposed to like dried out because we right. were like we were reconstituting, but also just even like as a thicken like a secondary thickening yeah, agent. Absolutely. And, like, so yeah, it's fun and it's kind of got like a good like sort of umami ish thing. So th- those things are fun and I would like to fi- figure out ways to do more things like that you know like we use green crab for stock like mm. making stocks and stuff we don't like pick through them because the cork was there like their bodies are yeah. so small and it's hard you to need get like a, a team yeah, yeah um but we do do like broths like that mm. so this leads me into a, a good little game if that's okay mm-hmm. uh so it's called three things it's not hard to play it's just t- you tell me three things they can even be made up if you if you want to make it up or real it's whatever it's just three things so the first three things is three underappreciated ingredients and this is all in your opinion I try to use everything, and I'm so inspired by everything. But I, I sometimes fall in and out of obsession with stuff. You know, like I get tired of certain things. Like right now, right now I'm on a hard palm kick. Hard palm. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I'm like, and then that like is like connected to my Argentine. Sure. Like self, I grew up eating palmitos like mm. all the time, but they were always like out of the can. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now we're using fresh ones, mm. and um, so that's. Yeah, remember the palmitos. Mm-hmm. Uh, what That's is, one. What's another one? I don't think it's underappreciated, but I like I love eggplant. I'm like obsessed with mm. eggplant in Brazilian preparations and okra. So I would put those two mm. in the same category because they're you know both have that kind of nightshade quality. Well, especially okra, people have that love experience okra. where they try it once in a way that they don't like it, and then they don't like it forever. Mm-hmm. You know, with oak, with with uh, okra, and then it takes, I think, having it done in a, a really good way to give it justice. You know, right? And then I guess the third one, God, I'm I'm kind of back and forth about yeah. it. I when I was going to say oily fish, like blue or like no, that's blue a good fish. one. I like blue uh-huh. fish. I mean, I guess we're on these coast. I'm gonna say blue fish. Yeah, because I feel like people think the blue and and I, and I, I I'm kind of upset with myself. That I said oily fish because like mac I think of mackerel and like herrings and mm-hmm. things like that is mm-hmm. more oily. Bluefish actually can have an incredibly clean flavor, Mm -hmm. but I think that because it's called bluefish Mm -hmm. and it has a significant like sort of bloodline, I think people are really sort of intimidated by Mm -hmm. it. But bluefish is great eating fish Mm. and it's plentiful and it's not expensive. That's a good one. Okay. All right. Three distinctively New York sounds. Traffic. <laughs> yeah. Siren. <laughs> I know. Sirens. <laughs> Traffic. Sirens. Probably construction mm. is um, is another one. That you know you're in New York. Yeah. Or if you're in a park, like, mm-hmm. you know, laughter. Yeah. Well, that's good. I like that one. Oh. And then lastly, three fears. Everybody has fears. What are three fears? Well, then anything would ever happen to my children. Mm, of course. Fear. Of course. Heaven forbid. Yeah. I'm going to touch with I know. <laughs> um, do you throw, uh, throw salt over your shoulder? I do. So I get made fun of in the kitchen because I will throw salt over my shoulder like all day long. Like anytime if I, if I feel, my anytime, daughter does it. Anytime. Like if I, if I, it, and if I, you know, you spill salt all the time. I mean, you, little right, droplets like fall little away, you, you, you know, I'm all the way, all, all the time. And sometimes it will actually salt other folks in the kitchen. And they, they just think it's funny because like, I'm literally the only one who yeah, does it. Yeah. I throw, no, I my probably daughter throw half the salt on my, the floor. My daughter's like a major, yeah. like klutzy, like <laughs> we call her torpetina. Like she's like very klutzy. And okay. She always, um, she even She's superstitious. Yeah. So yeah, so yeah. anything that would happen to my kids, I yeah, guess that's would be no the one. one, or my family, like sort of, of more course, broadly. Of course, of course, and then fire. 
I mean, mm. like, I have no issue controlling fire, like, when I'm cooking, but, mm -hmm. like, the destructive nature oh, of fire or yeah. storms, I come like, from California, hurricane, you know, like, I'm have, not really worried about earthquakes, but, like, like, hurricane and fire, like, that mm. kind of, like, destruction mm -hmm. and, like, major emergency, like, you know, Sandy was pretty, you know, mm. traumatizing for, for us all here, I mm -hmm. think. I have a little baby and like, I mean, a lot of everyone was out of electricity. Mm. It was like, you know, it was hard. Yeah. Third thing. I mean, I guess, you know, going back to the idea of failure, mm -hmm. but like true failure, mm -hmm. like not like somehow not being able to everything pick you, yourself you, back up. Yeah. Kind of everything you've like, built up just all of a sudden gets, you know. Yeah. That, yeah. That wiped or out. That, yeah. Most because I guess, you know, when you're. When you build something from the from the ground up, you do get that kind of those kinds of fears. Maybe mm. I think that's in the back of most people's minds, right? Mm -hmm. like financial instability, mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah, like, no, those are all three fears that yeah. are not unique. Well, Alex, thank you so much. This was amazing. If you want to check out Alex socially, it's at Alex Reich R A I J. I know. I hope we can like hang out over top of sometimes. Yeah, I know. Do you ever come to San Francisco? I've been. I haven't well, been in a while, but I would like to go to your restaurant. You're have to come. I know. I would love you to come. You should come to a, a guest night. I would a, do that. a guest night. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Food, Wine, and the Culinary Mind. Find us on all things social at Culinary Mindcast and on the web, canelasf.com backslash podcast. Don't forget to rate us where you found us.